Hi there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson. I just wanted to introduce today's show uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that it, it's uh, the last show of the season. I'm going to take the show on hiatus for the summer um, to give both the audience a break and myself. I'd like to do a few other things. Uh, I have some writing projects, for example, that I want to do. I'm setting up a workshop in my garage. I'd like to build a few things. And uh, so I think it's a good time to kind of pause the show momentarily for the summer. There will be a couple of exceptions uh, that sometime later this summer, I'll be talking to a couple of folks about the fallout of the Philip Roth biography. Um, if you haven't been following that story, you should look into it. Blake Bailey is the author of that. He's gotten himself into some trouble. And there's all sorts of discussion about that biography now. And I think it's going to be a really fascinating show. I have some guests lined up in July to discuss that. And I also have a potential really interesting conversation about connections between cryptids, paranormal, and Christianity with a, uh, a luminary guest. Um, I'm working on getting in the studio here to discuss uh, those kind of intersections. So there might be a couple of breaks from the break this summer, but by and large, I am going to be taking a break this summer. Um, the other reason I wanted to sort of introduce the show today is because it's a bit of a weird one, even by the standards of this show. Uh, it, this one is, is fairly unscripted. It was recorded back in January, and it was kind of me sort of thinking through feelings uh, with a couple of luminaries from the network, uh, Katie Grubbs from the Christian Feminist Podcast and Jay Eldred from this show and City of Man and Profiles and all sorts of other shows on the network. Um, and so I wanted to sort of talk about the ways in which our identities shift from one camp to another and the kind of forces that push us, per se, uh, in from one identity to another. And I really think that Katie and Jay helped me uh, come to some solid ideas, which I did not have at the beginning of this show. So this is going to be a weird show. Uh, I was recorded, I believe, back in January, and I just have not found a spot for it on the release schedule until now. Some of that has to do with you know, releases of books that I was interviewing the authors for and that kind of thing. Um, but also, uh, I've, I'm a little trepidatious about this show, um, and, and I feel like I'm making kind of generalizations at times, but um, it was very useful for me, and I hope it is for you. And the other thing I wanted to talk just a little bit about is I am also transitioning out of the website that I've been maintaining for the show for the last few years, sectarianreviewpodcast.com, if you're interested in looking at it. Um, I found a, uh, that I'm more drawn to kind of writing than I used to be, and so I've been publishing various places on the web, and I, I sort of more invested in that than I used to be, and the website was not a great place for me to kind of house all of that different writing. I found a new service that I'd like to kind Kind of push everything to the podcast as well as any writing I do. It's called Authory, A-U-T-H-O-R-Y.com. And um, what it does is it sort of looks, whenever I publish something, be it, a be it a podcast or be it something I've written, it will house it all in one place for me. And you can even subscribe uh, to get a newsletter. And so any week that I have published something, once a week, uh, you will get a, just an email notification that that is out and you can go read it or listen to it in that way. I would really love it um, if uh, a few of you listening could just take 30 seconds and go to authory.com slash Danny Anderson. That's A-U-T-H-O-R-Y dot com slash Danny Anderson. And uh, take a look. You can see the, how it organizes the work I've done. And uh, there's a little form for you to fill out and just get email notifications. Um, it's a great way for us to keep in touch. And uh, I would love for you to uh, take a look at that. And at some point, the old website will be vanishing in its stead. So all that business is out of the way. Enjoy the show and uh, have a great summer. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Gonna pray. 
Hey there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. As always, I'm recording from oh, excuse me, Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And um, I, I got to warn you, this is, for me, the strangest show um, of this podcast. Uh, podcast illustrious run and that's probably saying something um, but this one for me is odd because I don't have a very specific idea there's no specific object that uh, opens up a new conversation right that's kind of my typical approach to things like what's underneath a thing we can see and touch um, here I had just have sort of some vague ideas about political culture and and maybe in politics if we consider politics sort of broadly speaking um, about shifting the way identities shift um, and how we jump from one camp to another over time. And, uh, and I've been a little bit troubled, I suppose over, I mean, I suppose anyone who's paying attention to our politics is troubled on some level, Um, but I've been troubled as well, like everyone else. And uh, I recruited some friends uh, from the network to help me um, sort through my trouble. So joining me for, to uh, talk me, to what I actually think, I think, about this subject is Katie Grubbs from the Christian Feminist Podcast and the subsidiary Complementarian-ish uh, podcast, right? Yes, though we have been kind of taking a hiatus on Complementarian-ish for a while. We keep having good ideas and then none of us have time <laughs> to, to moderate because we're all also doing CFP. Um, and I perhaps should have anticipated that being a potential problem when I came up with this brilliant idea to do a, a side, uh, a side podcast, but, uh, but yes. And, uh, and I, I, but also we've been exploring some things on CFP, I think that are also germane to those ideas. So hopefully we'll get back to complementarianish sometime this spring. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's always great. And it's really great to have you back on the show, Katie. I, I, uh, I don't have you on enough. And uh, you're a wonderful uh, podcast host and uh, a very smart person. I'm very happy to have you on for this really weird show. You're very generous for uh, <laughs> spending your time uh, to help well, me kind of muddle through. Thank you for having me. One reason I love being on Sectarian Review is because I like that it always feels a little bit loose and interesting. And um, we, on purpose, have a slightly more structured format at the CFP, which I really appreciate. But it's sometimes fun to do something that is in a slightly different um, mode. And so I always enjoy being on Sectarian Review. You're very gracious. Ah, well, <laughs> that's nice of you to say. Uh, and joining us, uh, joining me and Katie, is uh, Jay Eldred from this show, from Profiles, from City of Man. You've been all over the network. Jay, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's good to talk to you again after several months. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, I can't remember the last show you were on. Um, I think it was the Halloween ghost episode. Oh, gosh. That was from like o- over a year ago then. Holy cow. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, well, it's this is uh, the ghosts of politics present, I suppose, that we're going to be talking about here. And so let me just kind of set up the conversation. And I really have no script for this because I don't even know precisely what I'm concerned about. But I have this sort of theory and this kind of came out of a, we have a private Facebook page for collaborators here on the show. And sometimes I vent to those kind folks and, uh, it, it, and this came out of a conversation we had there, but I I've come to see American politics as basically sports fandoms. Uh, you sort of have a team that you root for and Basically, you kind of adjust your uh, opinions about what you think based on what that team is doing. And this, I think, explains a lot of the inconsistencies and the supposed like uh, the hypocritical nature um, of American political positions and punditry. And so um, and it got me thinking a little bit about identity and how our identities kind of shape the way we interpret the world uh, and we sort of filter things through these identities that we adopt. And I'm particularly interested in how a person moves from one position to another. And I can observe, honestly, over the Trump presidency, a lot of formerly very conservative people um, suddenly very liberal. Um, and uh, and I, that's the one that's kind of most notable to me. And, and it seems to me more of a reaction to certain conservative um, positions and what I'm also concerned about is the way in which people are not necessarily going to something, but running from something. And they're sort of chased out of identities because of the way they're treated 
within these inclus- exclusive clubs. Um, and I don't know if that makes any sense, but do both of you kind of have a sense of what I'm talking about? Let me, let me start with that. And, and I'll let, let me just ask Katie to start. I, I, yes, it, it's, it's a tough question, but I, I think I've noticed some of the same, some of the same things. Um, and ironically what it reminds me of it, and this is a, like, this is a completely other episode, so I'm not going to get deep into this, but it actually reminds me a lot, I think of denominational shift, um, that's also been happening. I feel like in the last maybe 10, 15 years, I, we, you know, we have so many friends who I guess are kind of exennial, um, in their generation who've made a dramatic shift in their um, denomination, like going from Catholic to Protestant or Protestant to Catholic or, you know, becoming Orthodox or, you know, doing, um, but I think I've seen uh, similar things happen there where people will go make a dramatic change. They won't go from one kind of a Protestant church to another. They'll make this big dramatic thing. And I think the same thing happens in politics. And you're right. I think that it does have some to do with trying to get uh, away from something rather than going to. Um, and sometimes I think that happens because people are kind of what we would, I think the jargon term is low information voters. Mm. Um, and so maybe one reason people aren't running to specific policies on the other side is they might not actually know them. They might not know that much about the other side, but they know what they don't like about the side that they're a part of. Um, I think that some people are like that, but I also think that there is a different kind of person who probably makes that shift because of something that's more emotional, a kind of visceral dislike of their own side. But then that, that desire to shift away, um, gets them, turns them in into like wonks, like people who get super into finding out all the minutia of their new side, their mm-hmm. new party, because they, they've chosen it, right. As opposed to, I suppose, grown up in it or something, or it's like, you know, they've come to it, uh, in this kind of fever of trying to get away from something that they've grown to hate. And so then they want to know everything about it. Like when you're dating a new person and you want to know everything about that person. Um, and so I think, I think I kind of see both of those things kind of happen. Some people I think drift without thinking about it too hard, but other people, I think it's very, it's very, very, um, it's a lot deeper. The engagement's a lot deeper. And just, I, I don't know, that's, that's like what's right in the front of my head. And I'm going to keep thinking while you guys are talking and see what else I have to say later. That last point makes me think of a conversation, oh gosh, a couple, several years ago, I recorded an interview with a colleague of mine here, Tony Dragani, who's um, also a deacon in the Eastern Catholic Church. And um, so he's describing to me people who are converting to sort of Eastern Orthodox um, religious practices. And there's a certain type of person who's like, almost violently adopting that identity and, and they call them the Uber docs. And, uh, and I think that this is uh, sort of what I'm reminded of by what you're describing there in that last um, observation, Katie. And yeah, I think you're, you're sort of a, picking up on the same, Oh, I guess threads that I am. Jay, what are your thoughts on this? Um, so I understand what you're saying and I'm looking at it from someone who has realized that I myself have, probably been part of that drift in the last five or six years, both in terms of politics and in terms of, um, I, I hesitate to say denomination, but in terms of religion as well. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I volunteered to come on this particular show is because I thought I might be able to offer some personal experience or at least, you know, talk through my own insecurities. Yeah. <laughs> I I have to say, Jay, you are one of the people I was thinking of when when you when you. I'm glad to hear you um, you sort of identify yourself because I have noticed in in your personal sort of social media presence um, taking political positions that um, seemed new for you um, to me at least. Um, but I have to say, in your case, I, I've always seen them as part of a, a consistent carrying on of your principles. Right? You're sort of you've you've kept the same principles and you're just sort of honestly applying them to your former identity, which has kind of shifted you to a new one. Am am I, that is exactly what I would say. You know, it's, it's that now cliche saying, you know, I didn't leave the party. The party left me. Uh, Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a, an excellent, I mean, I hear that phrase all the time and I, and I, I don't know what your party affiliation was or is, but I just know, sort of know that the things that you're writing about um, seem to me, 
from a different angle and yet from the same kind of philosophical stance. And, and, and I find that very fascinating um, and, and honorable, honestly, if I have to say it's, wow. it's, it's wonderful. I mean, I mean, too few people are actually have principled positions and that's kind of what I mean by sports fandom. Um, I'm from Cleveland and in the mid nineties, the, um, Indians had a player named Albert Bell, who's just a horrible human being, um, as, you know, and, and, but in Cleveland, we all loved him, right? He wasn't a horrible human being. He was actually good and misunderstood until he went to the White Sox. And then we were able to admit that he was a horrible human being, right? And so, um, our, con- there was no sort of, uh, positional consistency there on that thing. And really, I feel like, um, our political stances map very neatly onto that. And now I find myself being annoyed on social media by the opposite political party that was annoying <laughs> during the last four years. And so I'm having to mute an entirely different set of people uh, on Facebook uh, um, because of this lack of principle, I would say. Um, oh, oh for, for sure. I didn't want to interrupt you. Go ahead, Jay. No, I was, I was just agreeing with, with what you were, oh. with what you were saying there. Um, and just to, just to comment, I know that, you know, I'm not quite sure what my privacy settings are on my social media, but if anyone, I know that it's wide open on Twitter. So if anyone actually follows me on Twitter, you could see this. But one of the reasons that I was able to uh, become a bit more vocal online was due to a change in in my occupation, which kind of indi- dictated what I could and could not do on social media. So again that's part of that drift is that I got to a point where I said, if I'm going to honestly live with what I think is right, then I can no longer do what I'm doing. And, and that's again, super admirable. And I'm very happy for you, um, by the way, on a personal note, um, that's been very exciting for me to, to watch. Um, and, and, and that's another element of that I'm interested in here. I've been, I've been kind of reading through, um, Michael Brooks's book from a few years ago called against the web. Um, and it's sort of like a, and kind of an investigation of the intellectual dark web. And that is kind of the group that got me first thinking about this. Cause many of those figures are kind of former like lefties or at least liberals. Um, people like Sam Harris, for example, especially, mm-hmm. um, and, because they hold, and I'm, I'm not a fan of Quillette or <laughs> the intellectual dark web. This is not a, <laughs> this is not a defense of these people, but um, I do feel like many of them were driven to that kind of really reductive reactionaryism um, because of holding kind of dissident positions within the left and being sort of targeted by people on the left and from the center too. I mean, Sam Harris, I think is more of a liberal, right? And so um, I wouldn't call him a leftist. And so, and so I think, I feel like that kind of targeting creates an inhospitable ideological environment. And then something like Quillette opens up and, oh, you're welcome over here to be a free thinker, quote unquote. And, and then all of a sudden you have a new home and, some suddenly the positions change to match the home you've just moved into. Okay. And, and I want to just real quickly, if I can quote a line here from uh, Brooks's book, uh, Michael Brooks um, against the web uh, wittingly or unwittingly, unwittingly ultra woke scolds feed a project of endless fragmentation and standpoint epistemology that if relied on as a strategy for action destroys any possibility for collective liberatory endeavor. And and his complaint is basically about the kind of poisonous call out culture that um, sometimes we call it uh, this, the endless attacking for positions that don't fit with uh, whatever's uh, in the homogeny of your mm-hmm. ideological ideological position. And so, uh, yeah, this is something also that's going to be feeding my thoughts here. Now, Brooks doesn't get too much into that. It's more of a critique of those um, IDW positions. But um, I think that he's sort of opened up an interesting conversation. And I, Katie, what do you think about that? I, I, I think that's absolutely true. I think that if... Um, if there's no if there's no place for disagreement within a particular camp or side or party or you know any any group, then um, if there's no if there's room for disagreement within, then people are going to want to leave. And if they're um, 
I, I just, I mean, psychologically speaking, I think that's very consistent, Danny. Like what you said, if somebody leaves a particular group because they're not allowed to voice any kind of contrary opinion of any kind, then of course they're going to feel very bonded to the people that they then migrate to who are willing to, or who, who are, um, you know, more about having an open dialogue. Um, I do think that you're right that sometimes that means that the person who has moved might then assume new positions that they wouldn't necessarily have agreed with even a short time before. Because I think that that acceptance kind of creates this, I don't know what the word is. Um, it creates this, well, it creates a warm feeling or it creates, um, you know, a kind of, it creates in them a desire to embrace other ideas held by their, you know, their new friends or their, you know, their new uh, intellectual compadres that they're um, with. And I think that's one of the dangers of creating a, a world or media environment or actual physical environments that this happens in our churches or schools or whatever. Um, I think that's one of the dangers of creating environments that brook no dissent ever is that you then push people out. Um, and, and I mean, obviously there are some things that shouldn't be said. There are some things, some viewpoints that shouldn't be tolerated, but I think that um, so often now, you know, people sometimes find themselves um cast out or righted for for really not not very big um disagreements or or simply for being insufficiently pure in their viewpoints mm -hmm. for not going far enough to affirm and i and you see it happen on you see it happen on both sides i mean i think you know you um you saw during the election you saw people on the progressive side being derided for not being progressive enough, particularly during the Democratic primaries. There are people, a lot of people who claim to be supporting Biden were way back then were derided because for not choosing someone more obviously progressive as, as their preferred candidate in the primaries. Um, and then, you know, through the election, you had, you know, people on the conservative side being lambasted for being insufficiently Trumpy or, you know, or for deciding to vote third party. I mean, it, it, it happens all over the place and it's it's very counterproductive. And um, and it does. It creates this fractured mentality, this kind of, you know, smaller and smaller affinity groups um, of people who just kind of affirm each other and on every point. Right. Instead of having larger groups that are more heterodox from in within with different ideas kind of you know bound together by a few big ideas, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, and I would mm -hmm. say this is where I would go. And Jay, I'll, go, I'll let you chime in here in a second. But um you know, my old standby Lionel Trilling <laughs> in the uh, introduction to the liberal imagination, uh, he references Goethe and says, and am I saying that right, uh, Jay, Goethe? Is that how you would say it? Um, close enough. <laughs> okay. With my, you know, you know, I'm, West Virginia via Cleveland, this is the best I can come up with. Um, Goethe says somewhere that there is no such thing as a liberal idea, that there are only liberal sentiments, right? There's sort of like attitudes toward the world and then your ideas kind of fill in the gaps uh, of those attitudes, right? And, and and I kind of feel like that's uh, the sense that I get of what you're talking about there, Katie. Um, Jay, what, what would you like to add to that? Well, it was, I was, it was just occurring to me, you know, as we're talking about politics and, and church that they're, you know, we are talking as well about how social media impacts this. And I know, Dan, you've had um, some episodes on, fandom on on the on the show mm -hmm. and that's a huge thing in fandom as well is how much you support not just the show but the show's creator or the um the actors within a show you know um unwilling to separate the 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 product from the personal lives of the people that are producing it absolutely you they're part of this identity that you've bought into, right? And, and I really think that this goes to people, a lot of people are baffled and dismayed, I suppose, by the fact that even after, I mean, people who listen to the show know where I stand about Trump, so I, <laughs> just bear mm -hmm. with me if you disagree, right? But it's a pretty abjectly disappointing presidency, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty disastrous on every level. Um, he actually increases his vote total uh, um, in between the two elections, uh, significantly, right? And um, and and people are dismayed about the fact that seventy or seventy three million Americans voted for Trump in the second uh, election. And I really do wonder if some of this is being forced into that camp and then just willingly sort of adopt Trump as a, as an appropriate choice because of 
your sort of team affiliation, if you will. And, um, and, and a lot of this has to do with, I think, the inhospitability of, uh, of attitude that people receive here. Um, one, so can I give you – so my go-to method is to find uh, an object, a, a tangible thing, and then sort of go from there to the big questions. <laughs> and so this is why this is very awkward for me uh, to talk in these generalities. I'm not a philosopher, right? And so um, I, I was reminded just tonight of, um, oh gosh, about 2008, um, David Mamet, the, um, the playwright, the great American playwright, who uh, kind of a, uh, an irascible character, right? And um, he's uh, got an article that came out, I think, in the Village Voice in around 2008, around the election, before the election of Obama. But it was something like, uh, why I'm no longer a brain-dead liberal, okay? And so it's sort of charting his evolution. And he sort of traces it to, he's writing a play about politics and inputting words in this conservative character's mouth. He comes to agree with those words or something like that. But I, I actually have another theory, and this is just a theory, but I know that David Mamet, as he got older, um, really, really embraced his um, Jewish identity and became um, vociferously pro-Israel and um, pro-Orthodox, like observant uh, Jewish practice. He had a book called The Wicked Son, um, calling Jews to become observant. And, um, and he's really, um, that became a central part of his identity. Okay. And at some point in this story, he's talks about being in a car with his wife and listening to NPR. And then he feels his face muscles tightening. Um, and then he's going to say a profanity to the, to the radio because it's NPR, even though he still at this point ostensibly identifies as a liberal. And then he says, I've been referring to NPR as national Palestinian radio. Um, and so there was, to me, that was a sign that, his kind of pro-Israel identity caused him now to take on the economic ideas of the right, which he felt more closely aligned with his most central identity at that point in his life. Um, and this is just me psychologizing, you know, David Mamet without his permission. I apologize for that. But, um, but that's how I read that. And so I really feel like that's instructive about how a lot of this works on a kind of uh like structural level um and what are your thoughts on that phenomenon i suppose whoever wants to go first well i i I did my best to follow follow that um but I, i i wonder how much of it is a phenomenon and how much of it is just the way that human beings are mm. because our identity generally shapes how we interact with the world around us you mm. know we have that central thing that we see makes us us and so we'll change everything else to fit that usually we'll change everything else to fit that rather than change ourselves and this is a core like i think component of this idea of standpoint epistemology right is my position in the world um, gives me access to uh, a vision of the world from that position, right? And so I have special information about that world. And, and so my standpoint in it becomes more important than um, anything else, really. And I think uh, I think that's where I, that's where I go with what you said there, Jay. Um, um, I think you're right, Danny, that um, there's I, I, I do I do think that you do see sometimes, uh, a kind of a, a policy shift or a, a you see one particular part of a person's identity kind of pushing them in a certain direction and then there are other bits the other bits of their identity might start to fall in line though I think for different people it's it's different things um, I think for a lot of kind of conservative evangelical voters and I mean they'll say this I don't think this is me you know making up stuff about them um, people who were kind of single issue voters on abortion a lot of times will say that that's why they vote um, conservative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and so then how, whatever they might feel about other issues tends to just follow along behind that. Um, for some people, I feel like on the left, it's immigration. I think a lot of people have something that is their, the most important thing to them. And that thing, um, you know, is going to influence everything else. Um, now, I think that that thing sometimes can even change within a person's life. And I think that that 
in a lot of ways can explain. I know right after the election, there was all this bafflement um, among a lot of uh, kind of media people or people on the on the kind of more on the left side about how many Hispanic voters broke for Trump. There was like an entire county in South Texas. I don't know if you guys noticed this. I noticed it because mm-hmm. we were um, that went red for like the first time ever. And there was this this bafflement and, you know, this incredulity that how how could, you know, how could these um, people be voting against their own interests because, you know, racist things that Trump has said and immigration and all these kinds of things. Um, But I think that um, I think that some of the most astute analysis I read of that was positing that for for a lot of those voters in, in this election, maybe not always, maybe there's been a shift, but for them in this election, they were voting based more on class identity even than racial identity or any particular political identity with particular policies. And so if they felt, you know, there were concerns about jobs and concerns about, you know, potential policies that Biden might enact that could hurt, you know, hurt their union jobs or, you know, um, Houston, you hear a lot of talk about that in Houston because we're a a huge um, oil and gas city, Mm -hmm. just to be frank. And so lots of people here um, are freaking out about the pipeline uh, construction being halted because of all the jobs that are just going to, disappear. Um, and so I think um, one of the, I think that sometimes those identity things, they can shift. And so sometimes you'll see people, they'll shift party or shift political identity slightly um, or extremely because a different part of their identity in that moment is taking, um, is taking the leaders, uh, superseding other parts so that they might have concerns about Trump's views on immigration, but they might in that moment be identifying more strongly with their particular class identity. Um, and might feel like that for their job's sake, maybe, or, you know, something like that. Or, and or I know that I read a really interesting article too about um, pro-life Hispanic Democrats flipping to vote Republican in like 2016 and 2020 on that one issue alone. Like, so it, it, it's just interesting um, that you mentioned that because I do think you're right. And I think that we've seen that more and more and more, um, those shifts as politics has gotten more polarized, right? I think that in the past there was more of a place for pro-life Democrats or Republicans who, you know, maybe were um, kind of fiscally conservative, but more socially liberal. Um, And I think as time has gone by, there's been less room for people like that. And so you see more of these what look like flip flops from party to party, viewpoint to viewpoint. Jay, do you want to add anything to that? I would say that simply if it's if we see that flip flop it speaks more to the failures of our two-party system than anything else that there's no mm-hmm. place for those people yeah that's that's just I, what i have off the top of my head no and i would agree and and i think that we're not asking the right kinds of questions about how to fix our political system and i think there are, are little things we could do that like uh, ranked choice voting would, you know, mm-hmm. open up the possibility for, you know, other voices to sort of possibly find their way into government, right? Just little things like that that we're never getting to because of the entrenched interests. But I also think, Katie, when you're t- describing um, like the bafflement of how anyone could from that position vote for uh, Trump, I-, I feel like it's a it's a sign of a fundamental misunderstanding of of people's of how to communicate with people right and i think so much of kind of liberal politics is located on the coast um that they don't sort of understand that you can't tell a play i live in central pennsylvania major sort of trumpy and coal area former coal area right um and you can't just tell them well you know just work on a windmill now right it's it's a complete i, I yeah yeah the, that the, was not great the, there's this sort of I mean, and it's not that I disagree that we should invest in in green jobs, right? There's a way of communicating that, though, right? That so much of the other party um, doesn't want to buy into. They don't. They don't see any responsibility to kind of move beyond. We'll just learn to code if you want a new job. There's plenty of you know. It's condescending and it's cruel and, and it's neglecting like roots that people have in these like these identities rooted into the jobs right that they were doing in these oil and and coal industries and so yeah i'm you know my wife does the podcast (laughs) restoration about environmental creation care right i'm all for (laughs) all of those green initiatives but you have to talk to people in a way um that makes them feel like you're on their side and and that you're speaking for them you're not condescending to them And, and so what you're doing is pushing people into a new identity 
Um, and, uh, and I was also thinking of, oh, some smug Twitter person said, oh, look, all these evangelicals that say they're just a single issue voter, they actually agree with the, the economic policies too. And there was some sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, statistics that they drug out. And I'm like, sure, but how much of that is retroactive? How much of, mm-hmm. how much did they buy the, the conservative economic policies because they bought into conservatism because of that other issue? Right. And so, um, yeah, I think that this is, uh, um, you guys are helping me at least articulate <laughs> some things. <laughs> it's all so fuzzy. I, I really, I, the, the, the poor audience must think I'm insane, but, um, uh, can you guys, uh, do you want to elaborate on anything? Well, I again, think, I can. Sorry, were you going to get say you something? You go ahead. You go ahead, Jay, because okay. I think I talked last year before Danny. You go ahead. I I can only speak anecdotal anecdotally, and since you've both talked about where you're from, I'll talk about where I'm from. Um, so I'm in like the middle of the Bible Belt in coastal North Carolina, and you know, speaking of of jobs and things like that, this has come up here as well, where you can't say you know go work on a wind on a wind farm or something like that, and then. I want to respond, well, you could, except you voted against it Um, (laughs) because we've had, you know, solar farms come in. We've had um, the wind farms come in and we've routinely or I say we our community has routinely voted against it. And then they want to complain that, you know, there's no jobs. That's beside the point. Um, Don't know where I was going with that. But I think that the depending on the strength of that single issue. Um, you can, I see it that you can adopt the economic policies of, of whatever, whichever party you're going from. And again, I can only speak from my personal experience, but we've talked before, even in the last few minutes, how for many on the right, if they identify as a single issue voter, many of them will say that abortion or that issue is their issue. And so when you start from the assumption that your particular party is morally right, then that must mean that everything in your party is morally right or Mm. your opponent is morally wrong. And again, it's only from my experience, but in talking to my more, those that are more conservative than myself, that's really what it comes down to is that many of them simply cannot believe that their political opponent might be, might be, might be right for lack of a better term. Because, you know, they believe that, you know, X, Y, or Z, and I know that's wrong, so everything must be wrong. <laughs> I hope that made sense. It does. And and we all three come from church backgrounds. I, mean, I think we all three grew up in, in religious homes. Um, I mean, it's not just me. You see a powerful, like, structural parallel between, like, fundamental, like, legalism, let's say, um, within the, the old church that we grew up in and particularly liberal politics i mean it's it's kind of obvious to me (laughs) that that liberalism functions like an evangelical uh like a legalistic community now am i wrong i think you're right um (laughs) i was about to say the exact same thing (laughs) i think because i think that i think that legalism is uh is always a temptation for humans i think we just do it and so i think it it arises in many places and i i I think because i and you do i mean you you see you see that operating in the church, um, in conservative evangelical churches. Um, and, but then you see the exact same thing happening in a secular sense, kind of on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I was thinking about it when you're talking Jay too, because I think I, I, I think I've, um, I've definitely seen what you've talked about Jay, people thinking that because the, they see the other side as immoral on a particular issue, then everything they say must be wrong. But I've also seen it on the other side. So I've also seen it on, you know, uh, kind oh, of on absolutely. The, yeah, on the flip side of the idea that, you know, for example, if you um, thinking that um, because many on the right are kind of immigration hawks, that anything else they say is just discounted because no person's illegal. Right. Or whatever. Like, so I think that it, it come it kind of it comes out in on both sides. And it yeah, this the last few years have been very weird because I think David and I both grew up in kind of very conservative church environments, him even more so than me. Um, mm-hmm. And, but then spent years in secular graduate school. Right. And so we have lots of friends on the polar opposite side. So my Facebook feed is just like the North pole and the South pole, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it's, 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 it's very weird. It's very weird to be um, kind of in that place between 
um, those two, you know, that's, um, and not, I mean, that's not every friend I have is not either one or the other. And, um, and people on both sides are wonderful people, but like, it's just a strange thing to watch play out and to see, to see it get more extreme on both sides over the last several years. And to, I mean, this is one for real, this is one reason that, um, we, David and I never talk about politics yeah. pretty much never, um, on social media because I don't know, I, for, for, because of, of the way that, um, we're kind of astride these two kind of groups I feel like in that situation you can't win and um and so it's um you know I mean and there's there's a few things that I've mentioned there I I have my limits too there are some things that I feel like I have to speak to but generally speaking I tend to kind of particularly because I feel like for the last two years too there's been so many times where something is like a huge big outrage it's the biggest thing that's ever happened and it consumes everybody for like a week yeah and then and not not this i mean like you know capital insurrection and all that stuff i'm not talking about that but like you know for for a long time there was a new outrage and there would be a new outrage every couple of weeks and then it would die down Mm. and either nothing would come of it or it would keep on happening quietly but like nobody was interested anymore because it wasn't loud anymore and a lot of that is just because of the 24-hour news cycle right Mm -hmm. so um because so it feels in some ways, uh, fruitless, but also poss- potentially, you know, um, I don't know, just, uh, well, fruitless is the best word I can think of to comment, you know, uh, about everything, about every issue, because, you know, you never know if it's going to be something that actually is a huge deal, um, uh, that you'll be glad you said something about or something that'll disappear in a week. Um, and then nobody's going to be talking about it again. And I, I think that, um, I think that I admire, um, I admire friends like you, Jay, who only really say something when it's a huge deal to you. Because I think that that is a much better choice than feeling you have to say something on every single thing that happens because it's social media. So I have to say something. If I don't say something, people won't know that I know this happened kind of thing. (laughs) And I also admire, Jay, how when you make a political post, you do that little spacer. Uh, This is a political post, 10, 9, and then it Mm -hmm. goes. So you don't have to to look at it if you don't want to. Right. And so, yeah. Right. And that was something that I started to do because I started to get a lot of flack from it so it's like okay i'm gonna put that there and if you choose to read then you have chosen to engage Mm -hmm. yeah that makes that makes perfect sense because then people know what they're in for so they can't get mad and say you know um because you're right they chose to read it i and i i've I've been particularly kind of and i've realized i maybe sound a little misanthropic um the way that i'm talking about this and i'm sorry i've been a little bit more misanthropic than usual about social media this week because i got called morally bankrupt by a friend of a friend mm. <laughs> in a thread on <laughs> Facebook this week. And I was kind of completely taken aback because never in my life has anyone ever said, made that suggestion uh, before. Though that was not related to politics. That was about, um, that was about uh, COVID. And uh, the, oh, wow. the, the friend in question ha- was considering traveling somewhere safely and had a, had had a different friend. I didn't know the person who called me this, said this about me. But um, my friend's friend was outraged that she would ever consider traveling anywhere like and so i you know i and 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 it's the kind of thing where again normally i would never say anything all you know like but because i felt bad i felt bad for the friend who was talking about you know potentially doing this because i thought man she's being so mean to her and so i you know i just tried to be gently supportive and then got called morally bankrupt for my trouble so you know i think that stuff like that more and more and more i think some some people seem to 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 take those pet issues sorry i know we're i've gotten us really wide at the point mm. take those pet issues or those things they build their identities around and think of themselves as kind of the police on that issue that one issue you know um and so we'll kind of let fly like no matter you know the venue or no matter if they don't know the person that well like in the case of you know and i mean i didn't say anything back because i've never met this person and i'm never going to meet this person they're a friend of a friend um thankfully the the person who i actually do know whose thread it was deleted that comment which i appreciated she didn't have to do that i didn't ask her to do that but um it was just it made me it, it was brought home to me in a very real way just how kind of heated things have gotten on social media um for a lot of reasons in 2020 and 2021 it's um it's that's one of the things that's really depressing and um I, I you mentioned Katie being from sort of church world and sort of working in secular upper you know humanities world right and and uh, and I, I have the same experience and maybe this is just my experience um I've always felt kind of at the margins of 
my faith, right? I mean, I, this is just uh, something I, I own up to. I, I've never felt fully accepted, I suppose. Um, and maybe it's just because I'm always, I, I have too much of sort of the, the but what if kind of <laughs> attitude towards things. It's just, you know, the idea of like maybe just questioning whether what we believe is the full truth, not without giving it up, but just there's a way of probing it, right? And that puts me, uh, it's traditionally put me on the edges of every church community I've ever been in. Um, and, and I've I've always felt like I've been much more accepted as a religious person in my kind of secular graduate school um, environment than I was accepted um, mm-hmm. as a religious person in, in church. Um, uh, I, I don't know if that's just my experience or if you guys have similar um, similar ones. Did I say it well? <laughs> yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Um, and I'm thinking, I mean, I, that, that's not really how it was for me, but I think for part of the reason is I think that, um, we were, I mean, we were accepted, you know, as, as people who are religious and still are, I mean, we're still friends with all our same grad school friends. Um, but I think that part of that is that we were not, um, we were doing our thing and everybody's fine to let us do our thing. Like we were never kind of proselytizing our grad school friends. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways we were and are non-threatening religious people, um, because we are not trying to, you know, um, because, um, you know, just being honest, it's not going to work, right? It's not going to work for me to kind of old style Baptist share my faith with grad school friends. You know, um, they, they know what they, at this point in their lives, they know how they feel about religion. And I feel like any, you know, any change in their hearts is going to be driven by Christ, not by me, you know, trying to get in their face about it. And so I think that that is one reason that we were, you know, and are, you know, not, nobody makes us feel weird. And I mean, it's also true that a lot of our, some of, you know, not all of our grad school friends were secular. Some of them were, you know, progressive Christians. So they were seeing us as being in a different version of the same camp as, as, as you know, we were also religious people, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. We weren't um, completely alien. And I think it helps too, that we were in the humanities. I think if we had been in some kind of hard science Mm -hmm. environment, I don't know that that would have been tolerated the same way. Um, I never felt as much on the edge like you did in church either though. Um, So, I mean, I don't, that's a, that's a harder one for me to relate to just because when I was young, you know, um, I kind of agreed with um, with all the particular doctrines of the churches my parents took us to then when I got old enough to choose or like when David and I have chosen together, um, you know, in at least one case we have switched denominations. But that was it wasn't because it wasn't necessarily because we weren't made to feel welcome. It was because we had a doctrinal difference with our church and they were fine with us staying there because even though we just we disagreed, but we weren't. Mm. We felt like we needed to be. We felt like that was a and that was a, a kind of a, a non-starter for us. We weren't going to ever. And I mean, it was like anybody who's, you know, not religious would think this is stupid. And in our case, it was about pedobaptism. Mm. Like we weren't going to be baptizing our babies. Um, and our denomination that did was fine with us not doing it. But we weren't because we thought if, if, if it's OK that we don't do this, why do you do it at all? But anyway, so, you know, we we just moved on to a different, you know, community. And so as opposed to, I guess, to staying in and feeling kind of. Uh, strange, which we could have done. I mean, you know, we could have stayed and um, and been a part of things and everybody would have been fine with us. So, you know, it is, um, I do think you're right though, Danny, that I think sometimes um, in the church, there is more tolerance for um, different types of people than, than dissent from within. And I think, I feel like we talked about that on a CFP one time, because I think we were talking about, I think I said something one time in one of our CFP episodes about how a lot of times on the evangelical side, people who had a radically different lifestyle and then converted somebody like Rosaria Butterfield are a lot of times very easily accepted and kind of celebrated. Mm. Um, but because of that shift, but then people who are from within the group, this is, I think particularly true in the complementarian world, um, which I'm still a part of. I'm not, you know, I'm not bashing the complementarian world, but, um, if you're coming from within that side, but you have reservations, like you said, Danny, you're mm-hmm. like, well, hold on. I don't know about this particular aspect of how we do things. I don't know if it's biblical. That is not tolerated very well. And so I think you're right. I think that does does happen um, that the the kind of um, the descent from within is often seen as a greater as a greater threat, hmm. um, sometimes even than the other side, because the other side's not us. Right. We, we, we feel comfortable being antagonistic towards them, but we want to be we want to be in full sympathy with everybody on our side. So be quiet over there. 
Yeah. Jay, do you want to tag onto that? I was going to say that I have I have had a similar experience. Maybe not maybe not the same. Um, unlike unlike both of you, most of my academic and professional career has been around church or church based institutions. Um, I had to laugh, Katie, when you talked about the old old school Baptists, because um, most of my interact or most of my life I was I've spent with um, Baptists who would deny the term evangelical because evangelical is too liberal a term. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. If, if that tells you anything. Um, but it, it's the same as that I've often felt at the margins in my church more than I have with my acquaintances who don't share my faith. Um, yeah. To the, to the, to the point that one of, one of the, one of the breaking points is when, and again, I'm not going to name names, but I had someone in, in a church tell me that I was a tool of the devil for pointing out that the uh, political shift in the 1950s and 1960s coincided with a shift in what the in what um american churches were preaching Mm. so Mm, yeah okay yeah yeah i had a lady i would i taught sunday school one day and uh well more than one day (laughs) but uh um, (laughs) although not as many as i might have might have but um but i had a lady come up to me afterwards um i guess during the during the lesson um somebody we were in during conversation i talked somebody into sort of rethinking a position um that they'd always thought and 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 their sort of motivation for thinking why they think i can't really remember the detail but he said something like i have to i've never really thought about why i think what i think and that sort of thing and, and I, I took that as a win right um <laughs> i mean that's as far as i want to push i'm not trying to change anybody's faith right um and some lady came up to me and just read me the riot act about that. Like that was just the worst thing that, you know, I don't really feel the need to think about what I think. I, I watch Christian television and I read the Bible and, and that's all I need. I don't really need to question it. And that's just, um, I mean, to me, like that was like an extreme, the most extreme example of, of that sort of experience in my life. Um, and, but it was also like very kind of emblematic of, of my kind of just ill fit i think in a lot of church communities that i've been and it could be uh, if i'd gone to like whatever an episcopal church or something maybe it would be different although i doubt it i think i have the same sort of attitude um and it would just sort of adjust um the target <laughs> of those of those questions right you know and um, um and, and this i have to say i mean i is the matthew arnold in me um, this is, um, his sort of two great dichotomies with how to read culture. And they're very kind of poorly, they're very ill-defined terms. And, um, and Hebraism and Hellenism is his two ways of approaching. And I don't want to get too much into the weeds of this, but Hellenism is sort of free thought, right. And questioning things and, and that sort of thing. And Hebraism is just sort of like dogmatically accepting uh, the rules and just rigorously living out the rules. And he thought English society in the 19th century was too um, unthinking and too unquestioning. And he called it Hebraistic and it needed a, a dose of Hellenism. Right. And of course he thinks both of them should live in some sort of balance. Right. Um, but, um, and I feel like that's exactly me. I, I feel like I, I always sort of am questioning. I, I, I don't necessarily want to change the mind, but just sort of open the question about, the beliefs, right? And that puts me in a very awkward position in church. And and I, the only reason I bring this up, I'm sorry to, <laughs> to go off about Matthew Arnold. I've been reading a lot of Matthew Arnold lately. Um, but the only reason I bring this up is because another kind of phenomenon um, that maybe we sort of can work towards the end by talking about this phenomenon of the ex-evangelical <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that has come up really, I, for me in the last five or six years, that term has sort of come up. Um, and I find it very odd because as alienated as I've always been, and there will be people say because of my privilege as a white man, I'm not as alienated as other people. And I totally get that. Right. Um, but I still feel like I'm, you know, uh, I have the right to an opinion about this <laughs> despite, despite those facts of my life. Right. Um, and so, but I do feel like um, as alienated as I've ever felt, I've always maintained that kind of core identity. I've never felt the need to exit the identity and, and 
then criticize the church from entirely the outside, right? And, and so I've mm-hmm. always, uh, and so that's kind of been a, a puzzling, the most, pu- which is fine, honestly, if someone wants to do it, but the most puzzling thing is why choose that name? It's like you have serious daddy issues if you name yourself after the thing you hate, right? And so um, I, I really can't, uh, I, I do, that part I don't understand. But um, I, this, go ahead, Jay. I was going to say, I think, because I've been following that particular movement and hashtag for a while now probably as about as long as you i think you said like about five years or so and i think it started almost to give a kind of clout almost to say i know what i'm talking about because i was in it Mm. and now it's gotten more to the point where at least what i have seen in the last year or so it's being used more by those that have a particular axe to grind it's become its own Hebraism, um, in yeah. Arnold's terms, right? It's become its own dogma, right? Uh, that that is needs a little Hellenism uh, brought into it. Yeah. Katie, are you aware of this phenomenon? Yes, um, and it, it it it's always been very interesting to me too, because I think my own kind of personal, um, I guess, kind of faith, but maybe also political story, has been of slow but small questionings and corrections over time so you know i um i kind of as i got older i really started to think more about why do i the theologies that i say i believe why do i believe them do i actually believe them why do i believe them um and began to do the same thing with my politics you know um and kind of um in the end in you know kind of my late 30s have come around to not being far off from where i started necessarily but knowing exactly why i'm there Mm. why i believe what it is. And so for that reason, the kind of evangelical movement is really interesting to me because it's, it's the opposite, right? It's, it's a kind of, um, intentional big gap, you know, that divorcement of I'm getting as far away from this as I can. Um, and I think a lot of it though is probably to do with, you know, for a lot of people, emotional trauma and, and that's not something that ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, it's difficult for me to, to judge, you know, anyone who felt the need to, to kind of completely step away. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting too, to see which people kind of, and, and I don't know if they would all use the term cause I, I haven't followed as closely as you, you guys do. But, um, I think some of those people then went into kind of a more high church environment. Like we talked about a while back, right? Catholic mm-hmm. Orthodox, some of those people completely stopped being Christian. Um, and that's also interesting to me and, and to me, infinitely sadder. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who, in that kind of evangelical movement who felt like that because of what they experienced in the evangelical church, that therefore, you know, they're just, they, they've decided that none of it's true mm. because of what they experienced. And that I think is infinitely sadder and more frustrating because, um, you know, I think Danny, when you're talking about that constant questioning, I think for not everybody, but I think for some people who kind of were kind of part of that movement, I think some people stepped away without, without much questioning. And I think that those are the people who might be more likely to just go, forget it. This, this was terrible. So none of it must be true. I'm just going to step back. I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm, you know, done. I'm secular. And I think maybe some of the people who had been, maybe had thought through more carefully personal theologies before going, I have to get out of this environment, you know, were maybe, um, wanting to keep faith a version of faith, but not the version that they felt like was scarring or wrong because they were maybe had thought through more and were more kind of um, intellectually attached to the theologies and not just thinking about the environment of the evangelical church, if that makes sense. And so they were um, they were trying to, to kind of hang on to um, what they did agree with um, kind of from uh, an intellectual standpoint, but get out of the physical environment and the, the version of the church that they felt like was wasn't right for them. Yeah, I would like to kind of clarify, you you kind of talked to me, um, you pointed out a very um, uh, callous thing I, I think I implied in my first thing. I do believe that traditional churches, call them evangelical, call you fundamentalists, whatever, have done trauma to people, right? And, and I do not blame anybody for exiting those those environments. That That is not my point at all. Um, and, and I, I don't... No, I yeah, I didn't think that's what you meant. I, I wasn't like, I, I'm just wanting to make sure that my point, I, I don't feel like I expressed it very well. I know that you weren't calling me out. Um, and, and I totally agree with that. I mean, that there are obviously voluminous 
cases of church abuse, right? And and that is not something I, I discount or, or discredit. And I don't think anybody should stay in an environment um, where they have felt that way. And I don't blame them for leaving, right? Um, I'm, I'm sort of talking about a more select group of people who just kind of like uh, ideologically felt alienated as I did kind of, you know what I mean? And, and adopt this name. That's who, that's who I was aiming at, but I was using the broad term. Right. And, and, and I, I, that was imprecise of me. And so I just want to be clear (laughs) to everybody out there. Um, I don't want to be called out. Right. (laughs) I suppose I don't want to be forced to be an alt-right person uh, because of something, (laughs) (laughs) of something I said here. (laughs) Um, And so, no, um, uh, that's the one thing I love about writing for Matt break over at pop and theology i've been accused of both being an alt-right troll and a uh, a communist right at the same time and so um I, lo- I love that fact um of my life but um but the um but this is my my main point is the the people who i think there are people katie you're right who've gone to like high church uh cultures the sort of people who convert to catholicism or um you know uh, orthodox or whatever. But I think the ones that are kind of more puzzling to me, I suppose, are those who just sort of adopt the exvangelical label out of spite kind of, and are basically just liberals, right? I mean, that's basically what you mean when you say it is you're just a liberal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which is I, fine. Yeah, I, know, I, I have lots I of liberal friends. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so that, that's, I, I just wanted to clarify my position there. There, there is a, uh, another issue um, about, you know, truly abusive, um, church, um, environments. And I, I fortunately, I don't believe I gotten, I've gotten out of those, um, quickly enough (laughs) that I didn't have to leave the entire church. Um, and so that's, uh, that's kind of, I I won't say that I haven't been in those, but I I haven't stayed. And so, um, and so, yeah, that, that, I just want to be clear about that. So I won't ramble about that anymore. Um, Jay, do you have any further thoughts on this? Uh, No. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I, I opened up a kind of sticky can of worms there. So, um, uh, Katie, what about you? Uh, I, I don't have anything else to say about that, but I did have one other thing to say in general. Yeah, please. Before we're, we're truly done um, about identity. Is that okay? Yeah, please. Um, okay, so, you know, we talked about how sometimes people um, feel kind of rejected in their identity um, because of parts of their identity or whatever, or they, they choose a party based on their Part, a part of their identity. But I also think something else that happens a lot is that I think some people choose political or sometimes religious, but more more likely political affiliations based on a kind of aspirational identity, mm. an identity they want to have. Um, and I think that you see this the most with, um, ironically, though I don't, I, this, this didn't end up being true for me, but I think that you see this the most with people like me who are people who are like, first generation college students, like middle class, first generation college students, and grew up like with, you know, often in a conservative environment and then get to college and, and, you know, and maybe grad school. Um, and you know, they where they're kind of immersed in this more, um, like liberal progressive environment. And I think a lot of times, um, in, especially in that world, in the world of kind of the academic humanities, your, your ticket, an easy ticket to acceptance is to just adopt wholesale the political viewpoints of everybody around you. Because at least, I don't know if this is true everywhere, but like when we were in grad school, it was very much a kind of monoculture, mm. at least politically speaking. And so I think sometimes for some people, and I, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's fake either. I don't think that, you know, I mean, at some people I think, you know, maybe they do front and say, oh yeah, I totally voted for that person, you know, and, and that's where you get into weird discussions about the shy Trump voter and stuff. But I think that there are some people who legitimately do adopt all those viewpoints. But I think that um, at least part of it is a, is a, a desire to be accepted as part of a group. They're, they don't have that identity yet, but they want it. They want to be part of the educated elite, right? And so then part of the price of admission is to like kind of have a particular set of things that you care about mm. and that you vote for and people that you vote for. And I think that that, um, so sometimes I think that, um, it's not always, I feel something strongly, like I only care about abortion. So I choose my party based on that. Sometimes it's, I want to be this type of person or thought of as this type of person. So what do I need to vote for to get there kind of thing? Um, and that is something that I was thinking about today that I couldn't get out of my head. 
And I think that's entirely right. Um, and this is, I think, related to the idea. I mean, I suppose it's passe to call it virtue signaling. That term was, it was overapplied, and so now it's become sort of meaningless. But this performative um, thing that you do on social media to sort of claim the right positions at the right times, right? And, and it's a way of assembling that sort of identity and 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 checking off the boxes uh, that are that are necessary. I think that that's I think that's exactly right. Although it's a tough pill to swallow and to sell, I think to people to, to convince them that they maybe haven't con- they're not in charge of their own identity. I think we all want to believe that we're sort of in front of that process rather than the product uh, of an environment, right? And and and, yes. and this is very Frankfurt school of me, I know. <laughs> but uh, but I <laughs> but I do think it's uh I buy in I mean, I agree with much of the Frankfurt school, so I suppose that that's that's only natural. But yeah, I think that there is a way in which um that we are sort of formed by uh these these forces, right? Uh be it advertising, be it sort of uh career aspiration uh, or whatnot and we do sort of conform to those thinking that it's choice but it's it's not quite choice is it (laughs) so um jay do you want to add on to that i think you said it just fine Oh, really? Because I feel really inarticulate about this whole thing, I have to say. Um, although, well, well, then we, we can agree that you said it better than I. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, uh, Katie, any last things to add? I, I don't think so. Mostly I just wanted to say I've really enjoyed this because I like you. I, I don't know. Danny, I get the sense that you're like me and maybe I'm wrong. But as an extrovert, I have as soon as I have to say things out loud to, to figure out what I'm thinking about them. Mm. Like I, I can think about it all day and I'll, and I'll get my thoughts half coalesced, but then I have to talk it through with somebody else. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I've been like feeling that happening to, for me as we're talking about this. So I appreciate the opportunity. And I think that you're I think it was a great idea for you to just go ahead and do this, even though, like you said, your own thoughts weren't you weren't completely clear on what you were thinking, because it helps us to clarify what are what 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 we're thinking or what we're seeing or whatever if we talk about it with other people so i've really appreciated it well i appreciate your all's contribution to this i, I it was very uh, risky I, I don't know this is a risky conversation to have even that facebook uh, conversation on our private page went places i didn't intend and it got a little snipey and 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 i really um appreciate this opportunity i one thing i do kind of I don't know if pride myself on, but a core value of mine is hospitality. And I hope people listening to the show recognize the variety of people that come on the show um, and ideological stances. Um, I really do value uh, that kind of input, right? I mean, there are better and worse ways to do it, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I don't want trolls on the show, right? <laughs> but uh, but uh, I try to, if, if someone's sincere and honest, I really do kind of value having a diverse perspective on this. And, and you two were really, really, um, really, really nice to come on the show and talk about this with me. Um, if anybody out there listening has anything to add or anything to challenge us on, I know that I've made uh, personally some generalizations that were probably unfair, um, but um, bear with me. It was sort of me thinking out loud, which I know is dangerous to do um, for the internet. And um, and so I, uh, I do appreciate... Uh, your feedback. And so if you have anything to say, please do contact the show. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Danny P. Anderson. Um, there's a Facebook page for the show too, at Sectarian Review. Um, Jay, you're on Twitter, right? I am on Twitter at J.P. Eldred. Right. And and Katie, you are not on Twitter. I have a Twitter account. I, every now and then I'll say, I should really be on Twitter. And I'll reactivate my, reactivate my account and then immediately forget to ever get on Twitter or post anything. <laughs> so I am on Facebook, but I'm not on Twitter, mostly just because um, there's so much to keep up with here. <laughs> um, and, and to be honest, I don't want to fall down the rabbit hole. I think Twitter might be a little dangerous for me because I'm the kind of person who actually is kind of into reading comment sections. I like to see discussions. And so Twitter might be a problem if I ever actually did fall down the rabbit hole of Twitter because I would probably never stop reading. Um, it could be a problem for me. So I'm not on Twitter, really. There are days when I mm-hmm. just have to step away, but I, I generally find Twitter to be a pleasant place for myself. Um, I know I'm in the minority there. Uh, it's, it takes a lot of manicure. It's like having a head. Yes. It can get out of control. Um, <laughs> but if you trim it just <laughs> nice, it's, it's a nice topiary, I suppose. I don't know. Um, well, um, if you anybody listening, if you have any uh, ire, please direct it at me and not to my fine guests who really I can't thank enough for joining me today. Jay Eldred and... And Katie Grubbs, 
Thank you so much for um, joining me and helping me think through these really complex and unfinished thoughts. Everybody listening, this is Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Mm-hmm.